0: Well, good morning. We've made our way back from Conway, Arkansas, where the BMA national meeting was held. And from what I've heard, we had a pretty good meeting. And I enjoyed my time there as well, especially fellowshipping with brothers and, and sisters alike, being able to spend time with people from all over the state, in fact, all over the country, and as a matter of fact, all over the world, uh, worshipping God. And, um, but I tell you what, after all of that, I'm excited to be back in my own church worshiping God with the people that God has called me into community with. I'm glad to be here with you. This morning we'll be returning to the book of Hebrews. I know you're excited. I'm gonna quit saying that one of these days because. Well, it just it breaks my heart how dry the preacher has been going through the book of Hebrews. It's my favorite book, and he he's he sure has made it dry. But uh, I think he's going to try to glorify God this morning as we pick up in chapter 10. Again, looking at a rather large portion of Scripture. We're going to be looking at the first 18 verses. Um, Originally, I had planned for this to be three sermons. So we're going to go through what I would normally preach in three sermons in one Sunday morning. And so uh, I'm still excited about that. Hey, uh, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and, and here's the problem that we face. What makes the book so interesting is that our author doesn't hold any punches. He dives deep into the theology that has been present since the foundation of his covenant with the people of Israel, and he reveals to us exactly how it is that all of these things are connected. With that said, I want to look at chapter 10 that we might see how Jesus is the greater sacrifice. We hinted at this last week when we met, but we're going to pick up specifically looking at Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Let's pray before we read. Father in heaven, thank you for our church. God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would guide us this morning as we study your word, that your truth would be heard and that we would be able to understand it. God, I pray that you would not hide yourself from us, but that these things that dive deep into who you are and who we are in you, we pray we'd be able to understand them. God, I pray that you would give us insight, but God, that also we would leave here transformed. That we would understand these things in a way that allows us to apply them to our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Chapter 10, verse 1 begins, "...for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect for those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin." But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And by the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin." The main issue with the sacrifice that we need to draw our attention to is the fact why in the world did people do this? You know, I tried last week to at least, um, in as least a not nerdy way as possible, explain how bloody the Day of Atonement was. Something like 20 different sacrifices the high priest would have made before ever entering into the Holy of Holy Places in order to make atonement for sin. What a bloody, bloody day. Why did we ever put ourselves through all of this? At Easter, we look at the cross and we are reminded of how gruesome the cross was. As a matter of fact, looking back even in Christian meditations, one of the things that we must be careful of is that the cross doesn't become some picturesque symbol for joy, hope, and peace. When in fact, it is the most gruesome form of execution ever to exist in the world. We have to remember what Christ put himself through had meaning and it was painful. What is the purpose of all of these sacrifices? Gruesome? Bloody? It's a painful reminder of sin. Our author makes this very point when he says that these sacrifices year after year caused the people to remember that they were sinners. That's verse 3. But in these sacrifices There is a reminder of sins. Coming back year after year to perform these ritualistic offerings as a form of atonement reminded the people that they were a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. You know what? Their consciousness was never made clean. We talked about this last week. They got through the atoning sacrifices. They got through all of these different things, and they still left feeling like muck, like the scum of the earth. I'll tell you the doctrine of the church today is that man is made totally depraved. The doctrine of the church is that man in his heart is depraved. We believe that the reason that people sin in this world is not because they have simply chosen sin, but it is because they were born sinners. We believe we sin because we are sinners, not that we are sinners because we sin. Man, even studying the New Testament doctrines of the church, I am reminded of my depravity. But bless God, you want to know the truth? I don't leave feeling guilty about such a doctrine. I feel I leave the church with confidence. I leave reading the Word of God with praise on my heart, with joy and peace, because my sacrifice is greater than all of those that have ever been sacrificed before. My sacrifices make perfect. This is my first point. My sacrifices make perfect all that I need to do. This is the author's point. If you look at verse 1, he says that the sacrifice makes perfect those who draw near. Jump over to verse 14 and you'll see his conclusion in this remark. He says, for by a single offering he has... What has he done? Come on church, you can say it. We're about to go have a fellowship meal. We've got to get used to talking. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has, amen, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Not only is my sacrifice perfect, but it is in the process of making us the saints, those brought by God to salvation, to perfection. We are being sanctified. What a great thing that we have to look at this morning. The consciousness of our own conviction is able to be set aside and cleansed. Look at verses 2 through 4 really fast. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, speaking of the sacrifices offered in the Old Testament systems, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder for every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These repeated sacrifices didn't take away the sins of the people. Now, we've said this point, but lest I would be mistaken that you would remember every word that I say in every single sermon, let me say it one more time, that in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, what cleansed the sins of the people of Israel was the real holy place, which is in heaven, which has been laid since the foundations of the world. What cleansed sins was always what these earthly sacrifices were a picture of. We saw but a shadow being cast by the glories of heaven of what was taking place in the real holy of holy places. What cleanses our consciousness is that we know that these things have been set aside because now even us today looking back at the cross no longer look forward to the day that the sacrifice would be made, but we are able to rest in the confidence that we know that the crucifixion and the resurrection actually happened. Jesus' teaching on this issue is quoted by the author of Hebrews. In verse 5, he continues by saying, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offering and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Those of you that know your Bible should be confused by this statement that Jesus said this, because this is very clearly a quotation from Psalm 40. What was our author saying then when he attributed Psalm 40 to the very words of Jesus Christ? If we looked back at Psalm 40, we would find that it was written by David originally. Again, our author is showing us that David was yet a shadow of the Christ who would come to fulfill all of these things. The technical word for it is, David was but a type, and Christ was the anti-type. He was the anti-type of the king who would rule over the people of God, who would have lordship in all of these things because he is able to say that God has never once desired sacrifices. Never once has He desired the sweet aroma being lifted up from the altar. But He has always desired what it is a picture of. He's desired His people to want to know Him. All along in the entire system that is laid out by the book of Leviticus... Aaron's descendants and everyone that would come after him. God has not been after sacrifices and offerings, but He's been after a people who would be obedient, who would love Him, who would be concerned with Him, whose character would be reflective of all the goodness of the King of Heaven. What he found instead was rebellious people with stiff necks who are depraved by nature, who run away from him in every chance that they could possibly get, who even when facing conviction of sin and awareness of their own ungodliness, run away. Here's the shame in the church. That we know the truth of God's Word. That we continue to sin. That we hear the Word of God proclaimed wherever it is, we hear conviction, and instead of responding to conviction the way God wants us to, with repentance, with contrition, with atonement so that we can leave at peace. We would rather walk away still feeling guilty, or worse yet, get mad at the fact that somebody made us feel convicted. We hear a sermon that stirs our heart. We hear the Word of God proclaimed in such a way that we recognize that we've been living in sin. We hear the Word of God taught in such a way that we recognize that our attitude is ugly, that it doesn't reflect God's people. We look inward at ourselves and we say, I might be the problem. Well, thanks God that we have the ability to run towards Him it is all the more shameful when instead of running towards him, we run away. Rather than face the truth, rather than run towards him, we place all of our confidence in the fact that, well, God's sacrifice was so perfect, I'm going to continue doing what I want so that when the time comes that I finally grow up, whenever that day may come, by God's will, I'll be able to repent. But not right now. As a matter of fact, if you keep pressing me on this issue, we're going to have a real problem. My exhortation for you, church, is to keep pressing. We stand on the Word of God that does not need any negotiation, any swaying one direction or the other. We stand on the Word of God with absolute authority. We can have confidence in being able to say that when somebody is convicted, it's not our fault that they're convicted. The truth convicted them all on their own, and the only reason it convicted them of it is because it was placed in their mind. Here's the reality. If you've ever convicted somebody of of doing something that might be uh, questionable or immoral or whatever it is, You didn't do it. What makes somebody feel convicted is that they're convicted because they know it themselves. What makes them angry is they're embarrassed that you can see it too. We have a sacrifice that God doesn't desire, these perpetual sacrifices. Rather, He says "Come, that He has come to do God's will as it is written in the scroll of the book about Him. There's a lot of different directions we could go with this. A lot of different directions of truth that is being revealed to us by God's Word here. First of all, there is the fact that God doesn't want us to rely on these sacrifices, but He desires what Christ ultimately gave, obedience. He desires concern for what God asks us to do. Second, there is the fact that Christ, in being obedient, became the sacrifice that bulls and goats never could have been because they weren't moral. He became the sacrifice that through obedience was made perfect, such that when He was crucified on the cross, Jesus Christ became the only sacrifice we will ever need. I love it when we get to verse 8. These are my favorite kind of passages to preach. You want to know why? The author of Hebrews already exposited what he meant by quoting Psalm 42. Check this out. When he said above, he's a preacher. He read the text from Psalm 40 and then then he's going to tell us what it means. When he said above, you have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, describing all of these things that come according to the law. He's saying all of these things that have been established that you have been placing your confidence in. He says after that, he says, then he adds, Behold, I have come to do your will. What's it all mean? He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Because obedience doesn't repeal the law, but it makes it no longer necessary. Now, this is some utopian vision. Imagine a world where it's necessary for us to atone for sin, that we might have a right standing and a right relationship with God. Now, imagine a world where we don't have to constantly go to this atonement because we can simply obey This is a utopia. I've got a little bit of good news and a little bit of bad news. And they're both in the same thing. We're not going to see this until heaven. Oh, it's good news because we're going to see it in heaven. It's bad news because we've got to wait a little bit. He does away with the first in order to establish the second verse 10 goes on and by that will we have been by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all You know what I think the problem is when we talk about obedience It's actually very simple I don't think we actually want to be obedient The Bible teaches us that Christians have been given everything that we need in order to live a life faithful to God. That doesn't mean you're not going to be tempted. That doesn't mean sin's not going to be an issue. Raising children, I'm telling you, that's one of those fine examples of temptation. I look at our church covenant, never to be angry and backbiting and bitter. My goodness, I think I'm sprouting red hair. But by God's grace, I'm able to be a patient parent. Oh, I know it every moment when I'm experiencing it. You guys know what I'm talking about. You're laughing right now, but but stick with me. You know exactly what I'm talking about. When you are at your wit's end, and you just know you've got to call Mama in the room, because Mama, I know that you've been with the kids all day long, but I do not have the patience that you do. I've only been home for 30 minutes, and I've just... I've got to to take a break. And you experience the grace of God flooding you with patience as you watch your child cry, and you're able to be compassionate towards them. If you've been saved, you know what I'm talking about. Those moments when we overcome temptation towards sin in such a way that we marvel at God's ability to work in us. I say this is a utopian picture, that there would be no need for sacrifices. Well, there's two ways that we can look at this. First of all, there's the fact that all sacrifices have been sufficiently paid for on the cross. The second side is that Christians who now have the Spirit of God inside of them are able to walk with God in such a way that He is glorified in their lives. Not just what they do, but in their thoughts, in their desires. So what I mean when I say I think the problem with this is that we actually don't want obedience is this. We don't run to God the way that we should. It's a little bit of a conundrum because with my mouth I say that I do, but in my actions I say that I'm just continuing to struggle with this in such a way. We don't run to God the way that we should. I think about the people in the Bible that stand out as phenomenal men of God, none other than David. I think King David's a fine example. The author of Psalm 40, as a matter of fact. Those that we will refer to as the man after God's own heart. The reality is, if you read the story of David's life, what you will find is that there were plenty of other people in the Bible that seemed to be a whole lot more holy than David. David. But not one of them <clears throat> repents the way David does. You know what makes David a man after God's own heart? He's heartbroken over his sinfulness. He's turned over. He runs to God like a child running to his parent, Apologies spilling off of his lips. And When he apologizes, he leaves and with confidence he doesn't return to that same sin. Obedience is possible for the Christian. Now, it's not without trial. And I'm not saying you're going to be perfect and never fail. But I'm saying if your heart is right with God, you're able to overcome a whole lot more than you think that you are. Because He is faithful. We got to get to verse 10, this really exciting verse, because the reality is by this perfect sacrifice of Christ, we have a promise standing right before us. He says, And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, what will is he talking about? He's talking about the will of the Father. Because Jesus says, I came to do your will. And by your will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In heaven, there's not this repeated sacrifice taking place in the holy of holy places, but rather Christ died once, it was sufficient, and it doesn't need to be repeated. We've been sanctified once and for all. Now, sanctified is a church word. Let's pause for a second and define it. You're probably familiar with it when you've heard of people... um, taking part in, a, I can't even remember, we call them ordinances. What do other people call them? Or, sacraments. It comes from the same word. So people participating in sacraments do so so that they can be sanctified. Now, we call them ordinances because we don't believe that, that these things cause a person to be made holy. We believe God does that. Well, as a matter of fact, that's what the Word of God says right here in verse 10. By the will of the Father, you've been sanctified. What does sanctified mean? It's true as four means to be made holy. Now, you can look at that in a lot of different ways. It means to be made righteous. It means to be made purely for God's own will. Uh, The better definition, I think, is to be set apart designated for a particular purpose. This is like the fine china that only comes out at Thanksgiving and Christmas. My family's gotten too big. Our fine china actually comes from China now in the form of paper plates. But to be sanctified means to be set apart. Set apart and designated for a particular purpose. By the will of God, we have been set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here's what the cross has done. It has taken those who are brought to salvation by God. And it has designated them for a particular purpose. Not only has it restored our relationship with God in the atoning work, This sacrifice has made us to be an obscure, strange, peculiar people designated for obedience to God. This is where we get the idea of holiness meaning righteousness. I've been set apart for the purposes of God in such a way that when I live my life, I do so to the glory of God in all that I do. I'm not weird about it. I don't do things just to be weird. I still live in the world. I still, um, still live in the world as it, as it were, but where the world contradicts the Word of God, I'm going to obey the Word of God. Which means I'm going to start looking weirder and weirder as time goes on. I get it, and I'm not worried about that. This greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ's body has set... Those who are called into salvation aside for the purposes of God. This all builds. Remember, he said he's making us perfect. Setting aside all our blemishes and mistakes, he's making us perfect. Let's look here at verse 11. While other priests stand regularly, Christ's sacrifice is complete, it's done. All the grace that we need in order to get through this world is provided for us in the sacrifice of the cross. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down, at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. Christ has made Himself not only king, not only sacrifice, not only priest, but He has made Himself the one who is able to judge. He came into this world saying, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And now this is the measure and standard by which he will judge the world. Those that have done the will of God by coming to him by, by faith in Christ, and those who did not. All those who refused him, he will judge, calling them enemies that should be made a footstool before his feet. Jesus now waits. He is not in the holy of holy places making sacrifices. He now sits down waiting patiently for the time that the Father has appointed that the world will come to judgment. A time that He will come to reign. A time that the saints will come to reign alongside Him. This is a utopian picture. Verse 14 carries on. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being set apart for His purposes, progressively being made more holy through His grace. Those who are running towards God despite their sinfulness. Those who with their guilty conscience Minds are running towards the throne of grace that they might receive mercy for their sins and forgiveness and experience peace are receiving it as they are made perfect for all time. They're being sanctified more and more that they may turn away from their sin, that they may no longer be a reflection of the world, but that they may be a reflection of the holy things of God. This isn't just from the preacher's perspective, the one writing Hebrews. This isn't just from David's perspective, writing Psalm 40. This isn't just from Christ's earthly words quoted. This is testified by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This quotation from Ezekiel carries with it what I think is the greatest promise of all in the whole Bible. That God gave us His law that we might be able to understand what righteousness is. But He gives us His Son that we might be able to live it. No longer putting laws in our minds as something that we would study like lawyers going away to school that we could look at, understand all of the precepts and the statutes. Placing it on our heart. This is what what we mean whenever we say the question's not about actions, but it's about character. It's about what is revealed in everything that we do. By saying that the Holy Spirit bears witness about this, our author affirms only what becomes our measurement and our standard of faith, the Bible alone. As the Holy Spirit's words recorded in Ezekiel and Jeremiah has a similar prophecy about the same thing, he, he quotes this as the authority. Therefore, our faith cannot be something that we conjure up on our own. It can't be something that we have built our minds around in order to conform to the world or to look like our friends. But our faith must be shaped by what the Bible has to say. Not in the sense that we would study it, but in the sense that it would dwell in our hearts so heavily that it would guide our actions, that it would be a genuine reflection of our character. Because God offers us this promise. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Look at that. Verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is earth-shattering stuff, guys. My children have been particularly difficult since returning from the national meeting. I left home for three days and my house lost all discipline. It was cute when Charlotte was able to open up her bedroom door and she would run to the bed and she'd, she'd tap on my shoulder. Because I always pretend like I'm asleep or dead. I haven't decided which one I'm doing. But I pretend like I cannot interact with the world around me. She runs to my side of the bed and she taps on me. Papa, papa, papa. And then eventually I get up. And there's one of two things that we do. Either she asks for beep, 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 which translates to three-year-old English, to adult English, to I'm going to sit in your bed until the timer goes beep, beep, beep. And then whenever it does, you're going to carry me like a baby to my bed and kiss me on the forehead again. Now, all this was cute. And the three days that I was away, Charles learned to open his door. And it is not cute when two toddlers are getting out of bed. Because now what has happened is Charlotte has learned that after the second time that she does this, I say no and she has to go to bed by herself and it makes her sad. So instead of coming to my bed, she now goes to Bubba's bed. Because she can turn Bubba's TV on. And so I hear the door open in the night. We went to bed at 1 o'clock in the morning. That's why my kids are acting up this morning. They went to bed at 1 o'clock in the morning doing this dance with me. It was not cute. Here's how the story ends. I put both of the children in their bed and I told them that if they got up again, I was out of options. I was at my wits' end. I said, if you get up again... You will get a spanking before you go back to bed. I felt bad about that. I felt like that was a little bit extreme, but I said it. But I'll be honest, I didn't want to do it. Sat down on the couch and I waited 10 minutes and I thought, all right, we're in the clear. So I started to get up and walk to my room and I heard Bubba's door. And here comes Bubba, like some secret agent barreling down the hallway, turning his head around the corner, and he looked at me and he went, (gasps) he turned around, started going back towards his room. I said, Bubba, come here. The living room's dark. I sat him down next to me. I didn't want to spank him. So I looked at Bubba and I said, Bubba, what did I say was going to happen whenever you got out of room, out of your room? And he said, "You spank me." So that's right. You deserve a spanking, bubba. I want to forget. I want to take it out of my memory that you got out of bed until tomorrow morning at 1045 when I use you in a sermon illustration in front of the whole church. I want to forget that you did this if you go and get back in your bed right now. And you did. God says He's not going to remember our sins anymore. You know the problem with forgiving people in this world is you're never actually able to forget the hurt that they put you through. God's an all-knowing God that says He's going to forget your sinfulness. Let me tell you the end of the story. Bubba got out of bed again and I spanked his butt and put him back to bed. That's how the story ends. But God makes us perfect so that we don't get out of bed again. will remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18 concludes, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Our sins have been forgiven by Christ. We might struggle in our non-utopian society to forgive one another. Even within the church, we might have issue with one another and forgive one another for it and walk away and struggle to actually be friends again because we're not capable of forgetting. But the measure of forgiveness given to us by the Bible is that an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God puts out of His memory the things that you come and ask forgiveness for. He forgets them so that your relationship with Him would be as though He had just created you. As though you had never inherited your parents' sinfulness, making you a sinner. As though you lived in a world and were perfectly made in the image of God, no longer distorted by anything, but were able to live according to His will, perfectly. This is the God that we run towards. Sure, obedience might be a bad word. Sure, we might not be able to see the glories of this until heaven. But you know what? If we really know what the Bible is promising us, we're going to run towards this with all of our strength and with all of our might. Everything that we want and everything that we are is going to be given over to wanting to be an obedient child of God. To be obedient to Him in every moment and every decision of our lives. And when we fail, we're coming to my favorite verse. Let me give you a sneak peek in the next week. We're going to have confidence to draw near to the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's chapter 10, verse 22. Because we get to have a relationship with God. Amen. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts. God, that you would help us to see that your word is more powerful than anything we could conjure on our own and that we would be obedient to it. Help me, God, to understand what you have accomplished on your cross for me. Lord, I pray for those in our community. God, I pray for our church. God, that we would be shrouded in your blessings and your promises. That we would know what each of them are, no longer being ignorant to them, but being blessed to be your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?